this is Angelina Singer, author of the Upper World series, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout, the best podcast for independent artists. Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and joining me as he always does each and every episode, despite numerous attempts to stop him, the one and only Curtis Hughes. Max, how's it going, everybody? Thanks for having me back. Joining us now is author Audrey Gale to talk about her recently released book, The Human Trial, which is, I gotta say, one of the best book names I've heard in quite some time. Uh, Audrey, Welcome to the show. It is very cool to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. All right. And uh, I'm sort of revisiting Boston through you. A little. Well, a little bit. <laughs> exactly, little bit. Kim. I'll tell you something. We're going to Harvard. We'll park the car. We'll hit the packies. <laughs> I apologize to everyone in Boston. I'm so sorry. Um, but, but, but yeah, but like you said, this is set in Boston, also in uh, Los Angeles, and this takes place at, uh, back at really in the 1920s, kind of a, I think a pretty pivotal point in like medical history with so many new inventions and, and discoveries. And this all focuses on one man. This is Dr. Randall Archer, who is, uh, really about to make a pretty amazing discovery, but Audrey, could you tell us a little more about what he does exactly and kind of what his role is in the story. Well, he, he carries the story really. Um, he is a medical doctor, but the story opens in Boston in 21, but it, it, it goes through his, it quickly goes to his adult life. Um, he is in a pretty terrible family situation. He's living in an abusive home, physically abusive. I mean, like, like, beating him up kind of abusive, not sexual. And um, his high school counselor helps him land a scholarship to Harvard. He's brilliant. So what he has going for him, and it's really the only thing he has going for him, he's kind of short and he has a baby face and he has wild, crazy hair. He, 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 but he is brilliant. And so he finishes high school by the time he's 16. But he hasn't told his family because they would want him to quit going to school and start working in the steel mills back in Pittsburgh. He uh, he lands this incredible opportunity to go to Harvard, and he is uh, pretty soon sort of selected out of all of the pre-med freshmen to be uh, close to a particular powerful guy in the medical school. His name is Dr. Errol Dole. Anyway, he decides that he can't just trust his brain power. He needs to sort of do questionable things for Dr. Dole, which carries him through Harvard. And he goes through Harvard pre-med, medical, and then he specializes in pathology, which had always been his intention, intention, excuse me. And, um, and he is dirt poor. And so he works in the medical lab at Harvard throughout his years there and meets another um, doctor. This one is a PhD in physics who's working on a very important microscope. And he quickly realizes that if this guy has what he thinks he might have, this amazing ability to see magnify some 60,000 times with a light microscope, which just to give you a point of reference, most light 
microscopes in today's labs. In fact, the ones I visited as research uh, for the book, they magnify usually a thousand times. And sometimes, rarely, they can get up to 2,000 or 2,500 times magnification. So this breakthrough microscope was, he quickly divined, was his opportunity to perhaps get a little leg up on all the other medical students he was vying with. And he is a very driven kid. Um, he wants to be a big time pathologist. He wants to be the best known pathologist in the world. So the two of them start collaborating just casually at first, but then it becomes more serious. And what they stumble on by working together in the medical lab is so shocking that quickly Randall Archer starts to realize this might be dangerous information. This might really upend the medical world if what we're seeing plays out, is, can be verified. So anyway, he, he makes it through school and he's working with this, doc, uh, this uh, doctor of physics. His name is Adam Wakefield. And, um, but then as it turns out, it's, it's now, it's right after the crash, it's in the thirties. That's where the story principally takes place. It's depression era US. And um, Adam Wakefield loses his postdoc position and the crash has occurred and he's from a wealthy family in Boston, but um, his family ends up losing all their money. So he's forced to find a job and he ends up in Los Angeles. And then as Randall Archer is finishing up his pathology specialization and all of his special favors for the dean, now the dean of the school, Dr. Dole, he loses his chance to stay on at Harvard and he's shocked and appalled. But at any rate, this all ends up moving him and his wife to Los Angeles where he gets a job at the university that Adam Wakefield is working at. So they again are collaborating. They're again seeing things that kind of go against everything that he has learned in medical school. He's getting more and more afraid and he's dragging his feet while Wakefield is pushing this ahead because it proves out his microscope, it proves its incredible powers, and it just might show us something about life that we hadn't suspected at that time. Now that that is a part of the story that's important because quantum physics has been around for 125 years. And as scary as that might sound, it's really uh, physicists like Einstein, like Bohr, like Oppenheimer. I hope you've seen the movie. It's quite good. Um, who have proven, it seems to be accepted scientific fact, that there is really nothing solid in the universe. That what was once believed that Adam being the smallest sol solid particle in the universe has in fact many subparticles and you just can't ever seem to get to the bottom of it there's there's another little subparticle and another and another until they realize that there's really nothing solid in the universe that that everything in creation including us is made up of 
little packets of vibrating energy called quanta, if you're a physicist, in infinite concentrations, which literally make up everything we know, the entire universe. That means our bodies are vibrating electrical concentrations of energy. That means our disease state is another vibration. That means our health state is a vibration. So that's the conflict that, that they don't quite know how to handle in it. And it, and it informs the story all the way to the end. Nice, nice. So definitely a lot of really <laughs> pivotal moments, as I mentioned before, really like pivotal moments in science. But I want to pivot a bit to talk a bit about uh, your background, Audrey, because you had a lengthy career um, in the banking world, and then you kind of pivoted to doing writing, which is quite the quite the left turn, I think. What How does one you... get there? I don't. Well, she's well, she's going she's to tell us. She's going to tell us, Curtis. <laughs> This is, this is oh, part of this is how okay. it works. We ask a question and we get yes, an answer. Sir, sir. I thought I had to guess. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. This is not a, uh, not a, uh, a choose your own adventure, dude. She, she's going to tell us how it happened. So, Audrey, uh, tell us how you kind of went from really one to the other. Well, I think, I think the more surprising thing is that I went into corporate banking because even as a child, I used, I have four sisters. It's a lot. And I used to tell little stories and write little stories. I have one of my first books sitting here. I think I was in third grade. And I remember always telling my sister that I was going to write. I was going to be a writer, blah, blah, blah. But the thing about being raised in a family of just girls, five girls, zero boys, my father, a workaholic, my mom, sort of a slave to all of us, really, when you get right down to how hard her job was. I thought, you know, there's something that surprised me when I went out into the world, and that is that men are treated differently than women, and there's all sorts of different assumptions about us. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to do what my dad does. I'm going to have to go into the business world and find out what it's all really about. So that's how I ended up getting an undergraduate degree in business, and I went into banking, and I had really good times in banking, some not so good. But what happened to me in the banking world was I just got tired of the gamesmanship. Now, I know that's in every phase of life. There's jockeying for position. There's nastiness. There's spreading of rumors. There's, you know, that's kind of life. But I just tired of the game. And I don't think you can be good at a game that you're sick of. So I had the opportunity at that time to make the pivot. And I went back to, actually, I started to write this story right then. I was trying to write this story, but it was so beyond my abilities at that time. So then I realized that I needed to go back to school. I went to USC here in Southern California, and I got a degree in writing. And in the process of that, I had to write a novel. So I didn't want to try to use old material. I wanted to take every teacher that I had and and approach fiction the way they think it should be approached. I figured that way I could just pick and choose, pick and choose. At the end, it'll be mine. And that's pretty much what happened. Um, but I had this thesis and it became my first book called The Sausage Maker's Daughters. I did uh, publish it under the name AGS Johnson and have since changed my author, my gnome de plume, to uh, Audrey Gale. It's just easier. You know, no one knows what to do to AGS or eggs or, you know, anyway, this didn't work too well. So 
Um, so then I, I, I got my degree and I have some really good writing buddies. And um, I, I, after I promoted my first book, I took some time off because it's pretty exhausting. And then I came back and I seriously delved into this subject. And it is, it is the hardest thing about writing this book was I wanted to write a compelling novel. I wanted to write a riveting story that would appeal to a broad audience of mostly non-scientists. But to tell this story, I had to understand what the original scientists who inspired this story, what they really had stumbled upon. And why was it so dangerous? And why was it suppressed for all these years? And so on. So I really had to learn about the quantum physics angle of the electrical nature of life. And then I had to learn about pathology and medicine. And so the hardest thing about this novel was taking that specialized, two different specialized languages which no one really understands, you know, whatever, jargon, whatever, and put it in plain English, plain enough for that audience that I'm hoping for to really understand. And um, luckily I had a really, I had two really incredible, I actually had four incredible uh, helpmates in that. I had a very well-renowned physicist, who <laughs> I still think about the, me trying to rephrase what he was saying <laughs> and how he didn't laugh, I don't know. <laughs> Must have been so amusing to him. And I also have a very good friend who runs pathology labs around Los Angeles, and he let me come and sit in his labs and look in his microscopes and so on and so forth. So the hardest part was taking their specialized knowledge and making it understandable for a lot of people. So that was my big, huge challenge. And that required some decisions. You know, there were a lot of medical terms that could have been included, but I left them out. There were scientific terms that I just felt like it was weighing the story down. So I really stuck with wonderfully flawed, realistic characters who I believe with all their flaws and weaknesses and also some beautiful strengths, I believe they reflect us to us. And then of course, you know, there's a, the, the interactions of the two scientists and they're going in separate directions. There's that kind of conflict. There's a bit of a love triangle uh, between them. And um well, it's a novel. You know, you have to have a little bit of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, I mean, really, isn't that like synonymous with the whole like medical science world is crazy parties and wild times and things like that? <laughs> I don't know. A little bit of glitter, long flowing hair, you know. I, I can safely say that with my girlfriend being a doctor, that's not what it's like at all, actually. They, they do get a little crazy at conferences, but... It's it, it yeah. ain't the other uh, great Gatsby here, folks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I I think, and and the level of of the medical field that we're really talking about is really the the people behind the scenes, the establishment, the 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 people who can control how doctors are certified and recertified, how doctors are educated, and so on and so forth. It it, it leads me to a very interesting article I read 
by Dr. John Abramson. He's a Harvard MD. And that article had so many shocking statistics in it. He was talking about what's wrong with our medical system. And he said, you know, it's not well known that we pay on average per person in America twice as much as all the other well-developed wealthy countries on the globe. And yet, since 1981, we've been losing uh, life expectancy against those same 11 other countries. And then he talked about statistics about, um, oh, here was an interesting point. He said, there is only one truly bipartisan agreement in Washington today, and that is the acceptability of, accept, of accepting large uh, contributions from the drug companies. And in fact, you know, I think a almost a billion and a half dollars is spent on medical research each year in this country, 96% of which goes to developing drugs. So there's, there's just a whole bunch of, you know, there's a lot of this as alluded to in my book, you know, the lack of transparency, the lack of oversight, the political conflicts, all of this is alluded to in my book, but you know, it, it mainly just follows the life of Dr. Randall Archer, who is trying to be an unquestioned, accepted part. Uh, instead of always looking in, he wants to be on the inside, and so that drives the whole story. So the book itself—it um, seems to be born from a lot of your own experiences. What were some of those, and how did they inspire the novel? I think it's a very good question because after all, I'm not a physicist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a biologist, you know, I'm I'm a writer. I came at this story in an unusual way. When I was in my mid-30s, I had I lived in Northern California at the time and I had a very serious infection throughout my body. And I thought I had lymphoma because I had lumps down the inside of my arms, down my sides, down my shins. And it was painful. I couldn't put my arms down because it hurt. And so I went to my internist at the time and um, he said to me, he, he sent me to every specialist he could think of. I mean, I went to the exotic disease guy. I went to the cancer specialist. I went to Everybody was giving me, you know, steroids and antibiotics and all sorts of junk and nothing was helping. Nothing was helping. So a guy that I worked with at that time, back in my banking days, um, insisted that I go with him to his acupuncturist. And so being pretty miserable and getting scareder, <laughs> more and more scared of, you know, lymphoma as what is what it appeared to be. Uh, I went with him and his acupuncturist stabbed me in one of those lumps and said, who cares what you call this? You have infection everywhere. So she gave me an acupuncture treatment and I did go back to her a couple more times. But as soon as we were done, she sent me next door to her doctor brother, who was the herbalist. And they were both named Dr. O. So Dr. O1 and Dr. O2. And 
Dr. O2, the herbalist, gave me the worst tasting, smelling, horrible herbs, which I was uh, supposed to put in a smoothie made up of organic vegetables with as much garlic and onion as I could tolerate. But good news, I could have it as many times a day as I wished. (laughs) So anyway, it was absolutely miraculous. I want to say a word about acupuncture, which has been around for 5,000 years. It's always been poo-pooed by traditional medicine. I think it's maybe changing a little. I'm not sure. But in today's world, there are electronic detection devices that can actually measure the energy flows, track and measure the energy flows through your meridians. So that's my little aside about why the acupuncture just seemed to work miracles. I, the herbs and the acupuncture, but immediately, I mean, overnight, the lump started to decrease and pretty soon I was feeling good and looking normal. And so I went back to my internist and I asked him to examine me and tell me what he thought. And he was astonished and he asked me what I had done. And I told him herbs and acupuncture. And he, he had a very good statement. He said, well, I think there's a place for Eastern medicine in the world. And I think there's a place for Western. The latter being when your body can no longer fight for itself. You know, I don't know if I 100% agree with that, but it is a good, it is a good explanation. It is a, a good opinion. So, um, so that started me thinking about what just happened. And you know, these electrical systems called meridians. What is that about? Then then I sort of forgot about it for a while. And I moved to Los Angeles and I had a very, very, very sick golden retriever. And I didn't have a vet. So I kept going to new vets because they all kept saying the same thing. She's 13 years old. She's a golden retriever. She's a big dog. She's lived her life, put her down. Well, I just couldn't do it. So I finally found a holistic vet who seemed to me to be practicing kind of voodoo medicine. He he used chiropractic. He used acupuncture. He used sounds and vibrations. And I mean, I had never seen anything like it. And so um, I asked him, I, I started asking him questions. And luckily, he was the kind of guy that would let me sit in the exam room. And he'd answer my questions. And he talked to me about two scientists he had studied and what he thought they were onto, which is this vibrational, energetic nature of life. And so he cured my dog with all these different methodologies, including sound and vibration. And then um, so I started looking into it a little more casually. He gave me the names and where he thought these two scientists had worked, which was wrong, but I was able to find them. And I started looking into it casually until my dad was diagnosed with leukemia. And he came to my house after his first and last chemotherapy treatment. And he said, quite clearly, I don't care. I'd rather die. I'm not going back for another one of those. So I, of course, did what everyone would do and asked him if he'd go to my vet with me. (laughs) And he did. You got to love him. I mean, my dad was so open-minded. Anyway, so we went to the vet. And the vet explained to him that he didn't have the sophisticated equipment that the original two scientists had at their disposal. 
So he made him a cassette tape. Do you guys remember cassette tapes? Oh, no, yes. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. oh, good. So he made him a cassette tape, and he explained it this way. He said, I don't have, like, delivering frequencies through radio waves, which was the original methods, but I can take what is the vibration of your disease microbes and I can step it down into the auditory range by like octaves. So like high C and middle C are related. That's the way I thought of it. He stepped it down to the auditory range. And my dad listened to that tape night and day. And he almost all, almost immediately started feeling better. And then he went back to his doctors and they went, wow, what have you done? And of course you can't tell them because it's illegal. My vet has since died, so I can tell this story. Um, and, and they said, wow, this is the damnedest case of spontaneous remission we have ever seen. And just like my dog having living another three years to 16, which is a good old age for a golden, my dad lived for more years, I, I, three or four, I think, and died of pneumonia, not leukemia. So then I was completely hooked. Now it's like, okay, what is this? And why is it so seemingly simple and cheap and effective? And, you know, there's no downside that, that I had seen. So that's when I got more serious about the research. And some years later, the human trial was born. Yeah. Nice. Oh, all right. Uh, I want to actually ask about the research because I imagine this was quite a lot. So, what went into just building the building, like the the uh, the backbone of the story? Well, it's really quantum physics. It's mm. the fact that 125 years ago, Einstein, Bohr, Oppenheimer, Max Planck, all all those guys started to realize that if you could look at anything, I mean, my desk, I mean, my body, I mean whatever, at the sub, 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 sub microscopic level, you would find these vibrating packets of energy, which they called quanta. So that's really the basis of what this is about. It's the basis of our lives. And it's odd to me that 125 years later, medicine has not looked at this fact of physics when it has to know, if you believe science is science, you, it has to know that our bodies are, are part of this creation. So, so that's the backbone of the story. The other backbone of the story is really a microscope that, that the inventor, whose name is Royal Rife, that the inventor was able to create with a whole bunch of different lighting systems which gave him a quote, my physics friend told me to say this, usable spectrum when he's examining specimen slides or whatever they're looking at. And that enabled him to zero in on the specific frequency of a disease microbe. It didn't matter what the disease was. It seemed that at the worst, at the most terminal, at the final stages of a disease before it finally takes someone that all diseases had this tiny subbacterial particle associated with it at that point. And um, 
there's a whole bunch of medical terms that we could go into, but I think it's best to just leave that aside. If you can zero in on that vibration, they found you could use that exact vibration back on the diseased body. And it eventually causes, first it causes resonance, which is a physics term, two bodies vibrating at a, basically the same uh, vibration rate. But over time, it begins to overwhelm the disease microbes and it starts to change the shape of its cells and the function of its cells until it kills it. And then your body, untouched in any way except just to pass out the dead toxin. That's all that had to happen. So um, those are the two critical points, the two critical points. And it's the, it, oh, and it's interesting, again, being somewhat suspicious that the story was well suppressed. All the doctors who were practicing it were either um, had their license taken away or they had to, they had to immediately stop using this information. And they, if, if they happen to have one of, I don't know, five, six of, of Rife's microscopes, they had to send those in to somebody in the medical establishment and they have all disappeared and they have never been replicated to this day. Even the electron microscope, which I mentioned, I mentioned in the book, because if I were reading this, I'd say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the electron microscope? It's got a billion capabilities of magnification. Yeah, it does. But it uses electron bombardment to light up a specimen. And that's just like sending back a vibration that it changes the cells shape and function and it kills what they're looking for. They don't get to see the little microbes dancing around. Have I, have I, have I lost you too? <laughs> miles back, miles back, but we're still with you. We're I'm still, still running you. to catch up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got it. Miles back. No. Um, th th so clearly a lot of work went into just putting all this information together, but of course we can't forget the characters. And you talked earlier about, about uh, Dr. Archer and Dr. Wakefield. I want to talk a bit about Archer's just his his immersion into Boston's upper echelon as they make this discovery. They become like a big deal. And this guy goes from, you know, family working in like the steel mines or the or the uh, uh, the steel mills of Pittsburgh to now being one of like the upper crust in Boston. What's that like for him to make this transition? Well, yes and no. So I have Dr. Wakefield and I have the the love interest elizabeth parish is her name um they're both boston brahmins do we still have boston brahmins uh, i don't know do we <laughs> I, I okay, don't know. So it, back in the day it, <laughs> gonna go with and no. certainly back in, in this day okay that for some reason the absolute upper social echelon of boston called themselves brahmins i i have no idea why and um Anyway, so they were they were of that upper echelon, um, but each had their own story. You know, um, for example, Elizabeth, a woman of her stature, status, is really just expected to be a pretty, entertaining helpmate to her husband and her children, and yet this Elizabeth was a woman ahead of her time. And she wanted to know what she was made of. 
And so she wanted to go out into the world and see what she could do. She didn't want to just be, you know, the, the pretty, the ornamental wife of Mr. Somebody Important. She wanted to be her own person. So there's a lot of that conflict in the story because she was way ahead of her time. Um, and primarily the 1930s. So she was way ahead of her time. and um, And her family absolutely expelled her from the family for marrying Dr. Archer. So he wasn't part of that echelon. He was always the guy looking in from the outside. And she ended up marrying him and moving in with student, student subsidized student housing at Harvard with her husband. And she got a job teaching, which she found out she loved. And so they're all working on their own personal goals. And Wakefield just wants everyone to know how great his microscope is. (laughs) So they need each other to some extent. And and so, so just to answer your question more succinctly, he was never part of that world. He was always looking in. And that's what he wanted to, he, that's, that, that is what dro- drove him, really. He, he wanted to be an insider somewhere. And so he ends up in Los Angeles. They didn't have Boston Brahmins in Los Angeles. And, <laughs> but he, uh, he ends up being, you know, he's brilliant. He's brilliant and he can do his work quite well. So that, that side's working. So the human trials, um, the setting, it, the story is, is so great that you really it's it's kind of timeless in where you could place it. I mean, you could have it current day, future, past. You know, we it you decided to put this right smack dab in the Great De- Depressionary period. So, how does that impact the story, and why was that the choice? It was chosen for two reasons. One is it really was the historical time that the two original scientists who inspired my vet, who then inspired me. It was the time that they were working. And um, and on top of it, I liked, you know, the writer's job is to make things pretty rough on your characters or it's not going to build suspense in any way. So the fact that even the wealthy were, were in, in dire straits during the Depression and, um, and it was affecting all levels of society, putting it in the Depression helped exacerbate the pressures on these men as Archer is starting to think about, my God, I didn't learn any of this. And could this undermine the whole field? What what might be the what might be the consequences of this? And am I going to be the one that all I ever wanted to be was an important pathologist? Am I going to be the one that undermines not just my career, but medicine? So so the depression just added another level of stress, which is what you have to do if you want to be a writer of fiction. <laughs> you have to be kind of heartless. <laughs> it helps with the suspense. And I wanted suspense and I wanted I wanted a story that captivates you. So it sounds like Archer um, had some tough choices to make here both in education and even afterwards. So how did how does he how does the character handle the pressure? Um 
I would say not well. He 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 just he, he one of his um, survival mechanisms in his marriage and in his work is to just sort of avoid what you can avoid, drag your feet if you feel like you're being taken in the wrong direction. And he's very, very paranoid, very, very paranoid because he's smart enough to see where this is going. He just can't admit it to himself. He He's not sure he wants to take responsibility for it. So he really literally drags his feet. Um, how would you say Archer kind of grows or changes over the course of the story? Well, I, I don't want to give away the ending because that no, would really take... don't do that. Don't do that. No, we don't do that. No, no. <laughs> no, no, we can't give away the ending. No spoilers. But he 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 comes to respect the, the strong moral codes of his co-worker partner, Adam Wakefield, and his wife, they 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 have a real sense, a, a real stri- strength of character. And he comes over time, which he always thought, oh, silver spoons, they don't get it. They don't know how terrible life is out here. They'll never. He, he comes, kind of does have to, to do a full circle on that because they're survivors. They're, their values carry them through the story. And he has, ends up developing a, a grudging respect for that. And it causes him to, to rethink his own his own values. So I think that's about all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you know, Audrey, I think the biggest question that we have for you tonight is what's next? You know, th- this is a very this is a very interesting book. Is this like a one-off, or do you think you might use this story, use a theme of this in your next work? No, I already have a fleshed out sequel. Of course you do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I'm going to take this multi-generational saga into the from the 30s, late, late 30s into the 70s. And that was another difficult time for our country. It was Nixon was getting thrown out of office and everybody had a you know, had had a cause that they were willing to riot over. There was anti-war, there was black power, there was feminism. There was a lot of hubbub in the in the society. And I like that, as I've just told you, like the depression, it adds pressure to the characters. And it's also an interesting time. It'd be fun for me to revisit that. And then as the COVID thing was happening all around us, I realized, well, wait a minute, I should bring this into today. Uh, I should make this come into the COVID era, which it really logically fits. So I am calling it a trilogy and I am planning to write two more um, installments of the story. And it makes sense too, because as as I'm, I think I'm sensing from your questions and also from a lot of other interviews and questions I've gotten, you know, people are stunned by this knowledge, stunned. So it's still not out there. It's still, you know, it's still suppressed for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I like this. I, I like the I, I like the uh, direction you're going in here. I definitely like the fact that, of course, there will be there will be uh, sequels here. I like that. All right. Well, folks, we are bringing this thing to a close. Uh, Audrey, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And uh, for uh, thank and, uh, you both. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you both. And of course, uh, folks, if you want to learn more about the writer, you go to Audrey Gale G A L E author. Com. It's all there. Get yourself a copy of The Human Trial. It's just out. It's a really amazing book. I've read a little bit of it. I'm really digging it, and I think you will too. And Audrey, definitely looking forward to the next conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. So will I. And we'll talk about coffee next time. Yay! Yes. <laughs> and with that, we bring this episode to a close. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, check us out on Facebook under Citywide Blackout, and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can catch this and all your favorite episodes on your favorite podcast platform, and new episodes are added every week, as well as on Boston Free Radio every Saturday at 10 p.m. You get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com if you want to suggest a guest, submit your music, or just drop us a line. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.